0: And so let us hear God's word from Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we uh, begin here today, uh, there are certain doctrines and and teachings that we have in the scriptures that we might say are hard. They're hard for us to understand, hard for us to see how it may be relevant for us, and so forth. Well, just a few comments here as we begin. First of all, if they're in the scriptures, God wants us to know it, right? And so we need to do our best to try to understand what uh, he is teaching us. In order to do this, though, we need to use the scriptures to help us to understand. We can speculate and and we can use reason and logic and all that's important, but we need to have the scriptures guide us in our understanding. And um, remember that doctrine is always practical. It's not just something we put in our heads. It affects how we live. And so with this in mind, we come here now to verse 3 and 4, which emphasize the person of Christ, who he is. Well, we began the letter last time, looking at verses 1 and 2. And Paul begins with a brief introduction of himself. He says he is a slave and an apostle. He was called by God and set apart uh, on the Damascus Road to serve Christ and to proclaim God's message of good news. The Father is the one, he says, who initiated this grace. It wasn't Christ, but the Father, and Jesus then came, and he fulfilled God's promises, and he secured salvation for us. This grace was not introduced in Matthew. It was introduced actually in Genesis in chapter 3. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God showed grace to them. He sought them. He asked them questions. Uh, He didn't strike them down right away, which he certainly could have. Uh, And then he promised that one of Eve's children would defeat Satan and restore us to God and to the tree of life. There are, of course, multiple other passages in the Old Testament that speak of how God would make a people for himself and to be their God. And all of this then, all these promises, all of the expectation in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so Paul now turns to a summary statement about Jesus himself here in these next couple verses. Now, as I mentioned last time, verses three and four are central to this opening section. and verses one to seven, We have this opening salutation, this opening greeting, and verses 3 and 4 are right in the middle. Remember also I mentioned that that phrase, Jesus Christ our Lord, the New King James puts at the beginning of verse 3, but actually in the Greek it's at the end of verse 4, and it's those words that are right in the middle of verses 1 to 7. That's the focus, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he begins his letter with these words about who Jesus is. This is very important to Paul, obviously, and it's, it's really the foundation of everything else he says in the letter. The gospel is all about Jesus of Nazareth, who he is as our Messiah, as God, as Lord, and as our Master. But what is interesting is though Paul begins this here, He says very little about the person of Christ, who Jesus is in the rest of the letter. There are some things, but not much. His emphasis is on what Jesus did, and especially the relation of Jew and Gentile to all uh, of these things. Now compare that to the book of Colossians, for example. In Colossians 1 especially, it's all about the person of Christ. That's uh, the, the clear emphasis. Think of the book of Hebrews. The whole book, really, is about who Jesus is, but not here in Romans. The, if you will, epitome of Paul's writings, the book of Romans, and he doesn't say a whole lot about who Jesus is. And so um, it makes you wonder why, doesn't it? (laughs) It's probably because the believers in Rome did not have a lot of questions about this. They weren't struggling with this. It was not such a big issue. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul refers to Jesus, hey, and who he is, but he's focusing on how Jew and Gentile need to, to get along and, and how they're both saved in the same way and so forth. Um, and so it's it's really a need here that Paul does not say as much about the person of Christ. But he does hear. And that'll be our focus and, uh, and such here today and next week. Now, most likely verses three and four were an early Christian creed or possibly a hymn that they sang. Um, Paul certainly could have written these words himself, but there are a few words in these verses that are a bit unusual for Paul. And so this helps us to, to think that it probably uh, was, was an early creed or hymn. And so, therefore, the believers in Rome probably knew about it. They probably started reading this and, yeah, we know those words. Okay. And so, um, Paul then, in verse 1, speaks about the identity of himself. And now here in verses 3 and 4, he speaks about the identity of Christ. All right. Now, here, if you look at this insert about these two verses, i just going to call our attention to its arrangement here briefly. Um. Like we have seen in the Psalms, so too these uh, verses are so well arranged that um, we can't just look at it in one way. And so we can look at this as a chiasm. All right, again, think of an X. And so you see at least the side, one side of the X there in the arrangement. And uh, the concerning his son begins it. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, it ends verse four. And so that ends the chiasm. And then notice you have... Um, who became from the seed of David, and that corresponds with from the resurrection from the dead. And then you have according to the flesh, according to the spirit of holiness. And then right in the middle, you have who has been appointed or declared son of God with power. That's his main emphasis here in these two verses. And we'll look at that part, uh, Lord willing, next week. But then if you look at the parallelism here, these two verses are in parallel. They are rhyming. Um, But we'd call it synthetic. There there are clearly differences here. But notice how the who phrases go together. Who became and then who had been appointed. And then I put in italics the, the from phrases, from the seed of David and from the resurrection of the dead. And then in italics, the according to phrases, according to the flesh, according to the spirit of holiness. Now they're in a different order from one line to the next because of the chiasm. But you see how these things are put together, and this is one of the reasons why we think it probably was a hymn or a creed that they used in the first century. Look at how carefully arranged it is. All right, well, with this briefly in mind, let's now start looking at uh, each of these phrases. And so in verse 3, again it reads, concerning his son, and then we'll skip over Jesus Christ our Lord, I'll do that next week. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. All right, so first, concerning his son. Now, you recall that verses 1 to 7 is one long sentence in the Greek. So at the end of verse 1, he says the gospel of God. And that gospel was promised in the Old Testament, verse 2. And that focus then is on his son. Here now, verse 3. And so the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would come and restore Israel to God and God's people uh, to himself. Now, some of those promises uh, we looked at last week and some other ones now we'll look at this week. And this uh, here, obviously, we see some promises regarding uh, Jesus being God's son. So let's turn here then to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. Now you recall, this is one of the foundation psalms, and you recall that uh, uh, Psalm 1 is about the law, Psalm 2 is about the Messiah. But initially, it refers to David. And so you recall Psalm 2 starts with the rulers of the nations who do not want to serve God. They want to serve the dragon. They want to serve themselves. And so they try to throw off these shackles, but God laughs, And he sets his king in Zion. And in verse seven, it says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then down in verse 12, kiss the son. And so this son does initially refer to David, but ultimately refers to the greater David, the son of David, who is Jesus. And so we have a passage like this that says that Jesus is God's son. And this means far more than just Nathaniel and Matthew and Noah are, are my sons there's something greater here to say that Jesus is God's son is to say that Jesus is God this is the emphasis throughout the, the, the New Testament okay and notice that when we see that uh, God is establishing his son in Mount Zion okay, the We have to recognize that, of course, Jesus has always existed. He didn't come into being in the same way that you and I have. And so when Paul says here back in Romans 1, concerning his son, he wants us to think of Psalm 2. He wants us to think of some other passages. And there is initial fulfillment with David and so forth. But ultimately, he is saying that Jesus is God is a reference to his divine nature. Jesus has always existed as the Son of God. He is equal to the Father. And when you look at verse 4 of the Spirit of holiness, you see we've got the Father mentioned in verse 1, Jesus mentioned now, and the Spirit in verse 4. So the Trinity is referenced here. And so Jesus of Nazareth was not merely a man, He is God's Son. And to say that he is God's Son is not to say that the Son is lesser than the Father. But they are equal. The Son is not subordinate to the Father. Not in the ultimate sense. They are equal. And so, if we look at one other, let's turn to Psalm 110 here a moment. And of course, remember, we looked at this here a little bit ago. In Psalm 110, What's interesting is Paul never quotes Psalm 110 in the, the book of Romans, but this is the closest we get to it in the book. And he says here, remember a Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, so I make your enemies your footstool. And then down to verse five, the Lord is at your right hand and so forth. You remember how we also looked at uh, Matthew and when Jesus was questioned by the religious leaders, he then asked the question, well, if if the Messiah is David's son, then how is he also his Lord? They didn't know what to say. And the point is, David's son is also David's God, his Lord. The Messiah is God, not just a man. And so when Paul is saying this here, that's his point. Concerning the Son of God, who is God, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16 here a moment. As always, we could look at so many verses, but uh, we'll look at um, uh, two more here in this context. In Matthew 16, Matthew 16, this is when Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, way there in the northern uh, reaches of Israel. And uh, uh, he asked then, Man, what do people say about me? And they respond and the disciples uh, give some answers. Jesus said, well, what do you think? And so in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, right? the Messiah, Psalm 2, right? the Son of the living God. And so when Peter says this, he's saying, You are God. We don't have to wait till the fourth century for the church to believe this. We don't have to wait for the Nicene Creed. Peter, right here from the beginning, while Jesus was still alive before his crucifixion, They were saying that Jesus is God. Let's turn to John chapter 20. And here's another example of this. In John 20, this is after the resurrection now. And you remember Jesus appeared to the disciples, but Thomas was not there the first time. And so Thomas wasn't going to believe until he sees Jesus. And so in verse 28 of John 20, it says... And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus appeared again. Thomas is there this time. He says, Thomas, look at me. I'm here, touch me. And so he responds, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he is the Messiah, the Senate of David, but he's also God. And so Paul's really saying the same things here in Romans 1 verse 3. This, this first line of this hymn or creed is saying the same kind of things. And so we must believe that Jesus is God He always existed. He did not come into being. He was not made, but he is God's son, the eternally existing son of God. We must accept that the father and the son are equal, fully God. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the author says that you are not a Christian if you do not accept this. It's that important. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe that Jesus is God. Now, this doesn't mean we're going to fully understand how all this works. But we must believe it. We must accept this truth. So, you know, when we think of how is this practical? What does this mean for me? (laughs) Well, if we don't accept it... We're not saved from our sins. We're still under judgment. If Jesus were just a man, he would have been a sinner like you and me. He would have been united to Adam. He would not have been able to obey God's law perfectly. He would not have been able to die in our place. And so we would not be saved. It's, it's really that simple. Jesus had to be God In order to be something different than us. In order to obey perfectly, because a human is not going to do that. But Jesus, as God, came and he lived perfectly. And without that, we would still be in our sins. And so if we do not accept this truth, then maybe we're a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon, or a Muslim, or a Jew or something like that. We may be those who say they're Christians, but are really open theists or have a woke theology. You know, These positions do not fully say that Jesus is fully God. And so they are not fundamentally Christian. And yes, they are not saved. This is an essential doctrine for us to believe and accept. Now, one more comment here in this way. In Christianity... This is the only religion that is based on a person. Judaism should be, but they have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Islam is not based on Muhammad. Muhammad is the prophet, but Muhammad is not our savior. Jesus is. So even in Islam, it's not based on a person. Even Joseph Smith and all that, right? It's not based on a person. It's based, in that case, on a man who became God, but that's not who Jesus is. All other religions are false in some way because they do not look to Christ as our God and our Savior. All right, so here's the first point and uh, a few thoughts in regard to it. Now, let's look at the next phrase. Okay. concerning his son. And the next phrase is, who was born? Who was born? All right, now this word for born is not the normal word for born. The normal word for born is used of Jesus. Yeah, he was born of a woman and so forth, right? Born of Mary. But this is a different word. It's this word normally means to become. You can translate it, come into being. Sometimes you can translate it as is or it happens. You can translate it as born. But it is interesting that Paul never uses the normal word for born to speak of Jesus' birth. He uses this word instead. The same can be said then for this creed, this hymn. They don't use the normal word for born. So in the whole church then, Right? They're using this word to describe the birth of Christ because it was different than the way you and I are born. Okay? Let's turn to Philippians now, chapter 2, because we have the same thing here. In Philippians chapter 2, this also was very likely an early hymn or creed in the church. And so these aren't merely Paul's words, but words that the apostles, you know, some, somebody put it all together at some point, right? And the church was using it, just like we read from the catechism a little bit ago, right? Same basic idea. So beginning in verse 5, in Philippians 2, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and now here's the word, and coming in the likeness of men. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1 verse 3, coming or becoming, okay? And so even here he is saying he became like a man. He was not born like you and I are. He's truly human, but there is this fundamental difference. The Spirit impregnated Mary, not Joseph, not in some carnal way like the pagan religions would say, the gods with humans and such, but the one who made the woman, the one who made the egg and the sperm caused Mary's egg to start to develop. And so it's a human birth, yes, but it's a different kind of birth. And so again, not the normal word for birth here, but this word for become. Even if you look at verse eight, he uses the word again here, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Okay? So he became a human and he became obedient so that he could be perfect and a fitting sacrifice for our sins, to die in our place because of our sin. It seems like Paul here and the church in general with these creeds we're trying to explain the incarnation. How do you explain God becoming man? Hey? Okay. we can't fully. But it seems like they're using this word to help to explain it. How do you put into words something that we cannot fully describe? Hey? Okay. well, this is one way they tried to do it. And so the eternal Son of God added a human nature to his divine nature. And in so doing, he did not set aside any of the divine attributes. Jesus did not set aside his divine knowledge or power or any of those kind of things. He had the fullness of divinity in himself. If we say he set aside anything, then he is no longer fully God. He's only partly God. And therefore, he can't be God, right? You can't be part God. You're either God or you're not. And so, if Jesus sets aside any divine attributes, he is not God. Because, again, you can't be part God. Okay? Plus, when he added a human nature... He did not add anything less than a full human nature. Right? You can't be part human. You either a human or you're not. And so he added the fullness of human nature. Right? And so Jesus though, when He came, set aside his glory. Right? When he was born, it wasn't this bright light in the manger. When Jesus was uh, walking to Jerusalem with his parents and teaching in the temple, he wasn't shining like the glorious presence of God. He set that aside. They got a glimpse of it on the mountain of transfiguration. He did shine brightly for a moment. Paul got a glimpse of it on the Damascus Road and it struck him down and he went blind from it. So there were moments of his glory shining. But Jesus hid that. Now, in regard to his human nature, he was affected by sin. He probably got sick, certainly got tired. The Bible tells us that. But he did not have a human nature that was sinful like Adam's and like you and I have. So again, we may ask, okay, why does this matter? Why is this important? Well, if Jesus were born of Mary by Joseph, he would have been a regular man just like any of us men. And he therefore could not be our Messiah. He would have been united to Adam and not a new Adam. And so therefore he could not atone for our sins. He would have been sinful and he could not be a perfect sacrifice and die in our place. This is necessary for our salvation. And so his divine nature and his human nature coexist together within himself. Jesus has two minds, a divine mind and a human mind. He has two wills, a divine will and a human will. He has two sets of emotions. Right? As humans we are made in the image of God. Jesus has that image. But he also has deity where that image came from, you might say. And so Jesus, as a person within this human body, has divine and human nature together. If we start saying that Jesus had a divine mind but not a human mind, or a human mind and not a divine mind, you see what happens. They're not fully God or fully human. It has to be all of both. How can you be part human? How can you be part God? You can't because you cease to be whichever that is. Let's turn in our hymnals here a moment to uh, page 853. All right, now read paragraph two now, read paragraph four here in a moment. Here in chapter eight, regarding Christ, second paragraph, this is how the confession, the Westminster men tried to explain these things. The son of God, the second person in the Trinity. So notice, son of God means God, right? God's son. Being very an eternal God. So he's truly God, and he's always been that way. He didn't become God at some point. Of one substance and equal with the Father. Now they'd start they use this word substance. We see that with the Nicene Creed and so forth. And it's one of those words that we've tried to use to explain this, but it's it's hard. But notice he is equal with the Father, uh, not subordinate. He did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. So what is the essence of humanity? Well, he had it. Okay? Not part of it. He is fully human. And the common infirmities, right? So he got tired, he probably got sick, you know, he probably got hangnails and maybe banged his thumb with a hammer at some point. You know, the common infirmities, yet without sin. And so Jesus never sinned. He did not have a sinful nature. And then it says, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance. So he has a divine nature and a human nature born in this unique way, or became, right? So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, So again, not part God and part human, but whole, perfect, yet distinct. The Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined in one person. In other words, they're still together right now, right? Without conversion. Now, this word they used here to say... Uh, you know, some people would say, "Well, once the human nature came into contact with the divine nature, the divine nature converted the human nature into divinity, or something like that." And they're like, "No, no, no! He's he's got a fully human nature." The next word they use here is composition. This is to oppose the idea that he's part human and part God, and when you put it all together, he's a full person. No, he's completely God and completely human. And then the last word they use here is without confusion. Now, we might be confused, <laughs> but Jesus wasn't. He was not multiple personalities or bipolar or any of these things. He was completely sane and so forth. He was not confused in himself. Okay? And so this paragraph is maybe the best paragraph in history to try to describe this. The Nicene Creed certainly does as well in other things. But uh, this is what Paul is talking about here in Romans 1 and verse 3. Now let's come back now keep this here. I want to turn to it again in a moment. Um, but let's turn now to uh, Romans 1 and the next phrase here in verse 3. Who was born or became of the seed of David, or from the seed of David. Your translation may say out of the seed of David, something like that. Uh, Clearly, this is referring back to 2 Samuel 7. When David asked God if he could build God a house, God said, no, right? I will build you a house. So let's turn there just a moment and read a little bit of this promise here. In 2 Samuel 7, in uh, verse 12, It says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Now, initially, this is referring to Solomon. And so Solomon is God's son in this sense. He is the seed who built God's house. But in the next line, right, if he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Well, Solomon did and he was chastened. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And so the initial fulfillment in Solomon looked for something far greater. And that of course, is Christ, who is the Son of God, God himself, and the seed of David. And so this promise is kept, right? Think of Luke 1, when the angel came to Mary, said he will be born the Son of David, okay, sit on the throne of David. It also says he'll be the Son of the Highest, the Spirit will overshadow you. So all those things in Luke 1 uh, speak to all of this here. Now, back here in Romans, note the last phrase here then is according to the flesh. And so this then is saying he had a true human nature. Now, think of it in this way. Jesus probably looked like Mary's brother or uncle or something like that. Jesus was truly a human with human qualities and traits. Maybe he, you know... Said things and and, and did certain uh, gestures and such, just like Joseph did, or just like Mary did, or maybe you know he, he was a lot like his cousin or whatever it was. Right? He had relation uh, and family. He had we know he had three brothers and at least two two sisters. We have John and aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and so forth. Look, he, he wasn't he didn't just have this kind of generic body with the soul implanted in it. He he was human. He was in this line of David. He had genetic qualities that connected. And so it's not merely God adding a human nature. There is this connection here. He was a real man. And so, as we saw in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says he humbled himself to take on this human nature. Now, let's look here again then at the confession. And now to paragraph four. And here the first part of it describes this aspect. This office, referring to the office of mediator, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake. Thank God the Father didn't force them or anything. Which that he might discharge, he was made under the law. Right? So, the law of Moses. He was born under the law of Moses and did perfectly fulfill it. Endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul. Now, certainly, this would include the temptation in the wilderness, the temptation in the garden. Okay? When people rejected him, remember how he was mourning over Jerusalem who rejected him? There's all these torments okay? and sorrows. And then, and most painful sufferings in his body. Obviously, he was crucified. And died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. Uh, if you turn over a few pages to page 871, um, question 27 says the same thing. In some ways, a bit more clearly. Um, in, in, um, on page 871, question 27, What did wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation, right? He humbled himself consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, right? Mary and Joseph were wealthy. And um, and made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And so Christ, who is God, became a man and humbled himself here in this way. Now again, I come back to the question I started with. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because if it didn't happen this way, we would not be saved. That's how important this is. If Jesus were only human and not God, hey, we'd still be in our sins. I mentioned that before. Let's put it the other way. If Jesus were only God and not man, then we would not be saved either. Okay? Think of it like this. If you have a senator or representative, they can't be that senator or representative unless they are a citizen of the state, whatever it is, Pennsylvania or New York or whatever it is, right? Well, in a similar sense, Jesus cannot represent us unless he is a human a citizen of humanity. And so he did. He took on humanity in the seed of David. Only a man can atone for our sins. Only a sinless man can atone for our sins. And Jesus had to be one of us to do this. And so Jesus then came, humbled himself, and took on flesh to fulfill these promises. He is the seed of the woman, The seed of Abraham, the seed of David. And because he did it, we can be here today and actually be saved from the judgment that we deserve for the sins that we have committed. And so this is why Paul begins with this. This is the foundation. Who Jesus is determines what he did. And so let me end then here today with this thought if God never took on humanity we would never see God even in heaven we would never be able to touch him we would never be able to go to heaven and give God a hug as it were sit on his lap and be consoled by him or something like, can you imagine that? but the fact that God took on a human nature in the person of Christ. We can touch him. We can see him. Now, certainly this was important for the disciples in the first century. But when we arrive in heaven, I'm, I'm sure probably all of us here have imagined coming before Jesus and seeing him face to face that day whenever we die or he returns or whatever. Again, can you imagine not having that? And so it, this is eminently practical. And, and notice how that impacts what we do now. When you pray, okay, are you just envisioning an empty throne, maybe with some light there? Okay, no, we envision a person. Now, don't be too detailed in that vision. Hey, that can get us into trouble with the second commandment. Hey, but there's a real person there that we're praying to. If Jesus did not take on humanity, we would not have that blessing. This is so practical for us. And think of it like this. When the end of the world comes, can you imagine just a bright light? But no, we're going to have a person coming that everyone will see and the unbelievers will tremble at. And we will be able to follow in the train of Christ, his robe falling off of his shoulders, the crown on his head, and we'll be ushered into glory. And so I, I, could, I, I mentioned here a couple weeks ago or whatever, I, I could spend so many weeks talking about these things. I, I decided to do it in one. And I know it's going a little long here today, but this is so important. And so I I wanted to give a few words here about it this morning. Uh, But it's not just for our heads. It impacts really everything that we do in one way or another. And so here are a few thoughts today. We'll look, Lord willing, at uh, the thoughts in verse 4 next time. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we uh, thank you so much for your word and uh, we thank you so much for for Christ and that um, he did humble himself and take on a human nature without setting aside any aspect of divinity except for the glory and obvious grandeur of who he is. Lord, we thank you for Uh, for this and that he has come to be um, our Messiah and our Savior. We are thankful, Lord, that as the Son of David and as your Son, as the God-man, we can be here today knowing that our sins truly have been paid for, have been forgiven, and that we can have the blessings of eternal life. We are thankful, Lord, that we can come before you even now this moment and know that Christ is in human form, is receiving this prayer and presenting it to you, our Heavenly Father. We are thankful, Lord, for the mediatorial work of Christ, including the ability to be seen and to be touched. And so, Lord, as we imagine it in our limited ways now, we yearn for the day where we will see you in its fullness, where Christ will be before us. And... Um, uh, usher us to your presence. Lord, we, uh, we, we yearn for that day. And so, Lord, we do ask you would help us to understand. But you, We do then also ask, Lord, that you would help us to live this out, that it would be um, part of our lives. And so, Lord, we pray um, all of this then in Christ in his name. Amen.